Hey there. Welcome to the Geography of Everything, the podcast where we try to figure out the geography of, well, everything. I'm your host, Ronnie Ravid. And I'm your producer, Zena Heilinga. The AI technology we have today seems like a fantasy, even just in early 2022. Since we first recorded our episode on the geography of AI with Dr. Pierre-Alexander Belland, a lot has happened. From chat GPT to AI-generated artwork, it feels like we made a massive leap seemingly overnight. For that reason, we invited Dr. Belland back on the show to catch us up on the developments of the last year and a half and discuss the implications for governments, universities, the job market, and perhaps even society at large. And in the end, we learned that perhaps the way forward is to learn to leverage these new technologies as opposed to fighting them. recorded an episode a while back, actually about 15, 16 months back, about AI when it all seemed like a distant future. But since then, we've had things like chat GPT come on the scene really, really strongly, and Zen and I felt like we had to do a follow-up episode. So we invited uh, Dr. Pierre-Alexander back, um, our hometown expert on AI. And uh, in the case that any of our listeners haven't listened to the first episode, we really encourage you to listen to it. Uh, We really cover a lot of the basics of AI in it that I think we're going to gloss over or at least go through a little bit quicker this time. So if you haven't, highly suggest go ahead and listen to the first geography of AI episode, then come back here. For those of you that are not interested in doing the required reading, which I understand because I don't usually either, uh, (laughs) we'll have P.A. introduce himself again, a little bit about himself and what got him interested in the topic, and a little bit about his expertise in AI. So thanks for coming back. We're super excited to have you here. And uh, yeah, we're ready to dig into what's happened since May 2022. Oh, wow. So much. And I'm actually really happy that the field evolved so quickly because then I can come back and see you guys again. So that's pretty cool. Now, I have to warn you about two things. Uh, You say we're going to gloss over and it's going to be fast. That's not knowing me very well. That's the first thing. And second thing, if we're going to see each other every time there is a major advance in AI, I'm going to be coming every year because this field is evolving super, super fast. So basically, I'm a, I'm a professor here at Utrecht University. And uh, what I'm really, really excited about is complex technologies, to make it very simple, in particular AI and blockchain. And I really care about the impact of this technology on society. So I do research on this. I teach on this, as you know. And I also work a lot with policymakers. So I'm a policy expert at the European Commission and advise other government on research innovation policy, especially when it comes to digital technologies. So that's what I care about, how this technology basically impacts all of us. And what I can tell you is that uh, if you were scared last time and if you thought the impact was immense, Well, got worse. Let me tell you, I am scared. (laughs) (laughs) And I've I've been staying scared. (laughs) The scared is only increasing with time. (laughs) 
<laughs> so Pierre Alex, what actually has changed? And is it such a big change or is it just more obvious with the, the coming of ChatGPT? Yeah, it it is a major change. It's it's really a, a seismic shift, if you if you want. So essentially, uh, this generative AI uh, really can do stuff that we thought only humans could do for a very very long time. We thought we were very far away from having AI do stuff like create movies, images, and and basically write essays and perform at creative tests better than 99% of students in, in, in college. We thought we were very far away from that. When you guys invited me to the podcast last time, even I thought we were far away from that. And essentially we realized that we were way closer than we were expecting. Hey, that's a little terrifying, because I remember <laughs> the last episode, you told me, I don't know, 20, 30 years, and I was like, ah, oh, that's, that's a later me's problem, and all of a sudden it's current me's problem. But, I mean, how did we experience this kind of jump all of a sudden? Have people just been working undercover and none of us knew, or was there this big revelation? How did we go from having such a long foresight of this won't happen for a decade or two decades to this happened a few months ago? No, it's a great question. And basically uh, what, what happened in the big change is something we call natural language processing and natural language generation. So natural language processing is instead of having to learn R, Python, or another programming language to communicate with the computer and instruct the computer to do stuff, which is what we've been doing for 50 years, all of a sudden, our computer can understand our natural human language very, very well. And that is something that changed over the past couple of months. And something which is even more impressive is that now the computer can also answer to you in ways that really look like, like and sound like a human. And that is something that essentially, it's not new in itself, uh, like the, the, the models that have been, you know, we've been working on speech recognition, NLP, NLG for many years. It just got better, way faster than we expected. So it's like Siri on crack. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, on crack. I'm not, I'm not sure crack is the right one, but on steroid, on steroid, maybe on steroid. Well, I mean, actually, maybe on crack, because sometimes, and we uh, hopefully we'll talk about that, large language models, they actually hallucinate. So oh, sometimes they, they do, oh, oh, we're going to cover a lot of cool topics, uh, let me tell you. Is there an explanation for why we didn't see this unexpected jump? Yeah, so essentially, um, let, let's, let's maybe rewind a little bit and, and, and understand what happened, right? I think uh, our uh, audience needs a little bit of context. AI is a very old field, you know, started in 1950, and essentially we've been having uh, hypes, and cycle of hypes and enthusiasm, followed by what we call AI winters, where basically people are actually, it's not working as well as we thought. So we got excited. Oh, well, it, we can have chatbots. Well, actually, chatbots really you know, don't work very well. And we can all have experience getting frustrated with chatbots. So the story of AI since 1950 is like, oh, cool, we can do that. Actually, just a proof of concept in production, it doesn't work that well. And then we've been going back and forth, back and forth, more or less until the internet. And once we had the internet, what we had is a massive amount of data to train our algorithm. So what happened with, you know, Google, uh, through your Gmail, with Spotify, you know, they give you a service for free, you give the data, they use data, train models, recommend the system, and then filter what you see from the internet. And that has been like the first real successful application of AI that we've all used. Okay, and that's what we talked about last time. And that was the first phase of the AI revolution at, 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 at scale. 
And now we're going to be talking about the second phase of this AI revolution. So what happened is, again, we use this internet data. Like, think about the internet data as the, an immense repository of knowledge, human knowledge. We have AI that are being trained on patents, scientific publication, you know, millions of them, blogs, tweets, Reddit posts. All of this information is what humans basically know and, you know, the, the way they, 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 they basically communicate. And we had models that were trained on this massive amount of data. That's why we call them large language models. So they've been trained on that. And what they learned to do is actually to predict the next word that comes. Uh, so it's transition matrix and they predict the next word. So they form sentences. So it works very, very easy. If I, if I tell you, for instance, Utrecht is a very nice city. City. <laughs> See, it's not random. <laughs> you, you, you had this in mind, and I'm sure Zen has the same in mind. And why? Because you've been trained to see this pattern, this sequence of words, a lot. And this is pretty much how these uh, algorithms learn as well. They've read that millions of times, millions of times. So they predict what is the most likely word that comes after a sequence of words. And essentially, they're generating language in a very probabilistic way, which means they're not always right, but most of the time they are. I think, okay, <laughs> I'm going to ask you a question. It might sound a little stupid, um, but I think that that's kind of inherent to the question itself. So if it is learning from us and there's 100 million users and growing by the day and more people are using it, and we can assume that maybe the average human is not a genius, <laughs> And it's feeding at things that are perhaps wrong or it's learning things that are incorrect and over time continues getting incorrect information. It's not like there's like a scientific backing process to the information AI puts out, right? So is it going to get stupider? Okay, it's a great question, uh, and, and that, that's not true. There's been a lot of discussion about that. This is not actually what we see. And uh, just think about yourself when you learn. You also learn from other humans, right? And, and humans over time did not get, you know, they, they got smarter. I mean, uh, oh, we could maybe discuss that, but uh, I would say <laughs> we tend to get smarter over time. So there is no reason why. Actually, the way AI and, and human intelligence work is very similar. You have a lot of analogies between the two. So we... You know, AI learned from us, and we learn from each other as well, in that sense. So there is no theoretical reason for this to happen, first of all, and to, for, for AI to get, uh, to get like dumber, let's say. Now, something really important, also for people listening to us and trying to understand how it's figured out, uh, we had issues at some point of AI uh, doing back things, doing things that were not ethical or like outright illegal, right? So for instance, the problem is that on the web, you, you will find uh, racist stuff. So what if your AI reads that and be like, okay, humans tend to say that after that, and then you, know, you, you can come up oh, with something no. absolutely horrible because you find this horrible thing on the web. If you go on Reddit, it's terrifying, right? Some of the stuff you find. So the way this problem was solved was non-technological at all. It was to put the human back in the loop. So essentially, we have something we call reinforcement feedback from human. Right. So humans provide feedback and say, oh, this is wrong. Don't say that. And we have an army of humans working to basically educate ChatGPT not to be a racist. And, and it, it does work really well. But it poses a, a question, though. 
who decides what is wrong and what is not wrong? And how much transparency do we have about it? Well, I can answer the second question. We don't know. We don't know what, I don't know, I cannot tell you, what are the rules that say, okay, this you should not say. So you have a, really a danger of some AI, you know, basically reflecting the belief of one part of society. I mean, think about the topic of abortion, which divide the US. Like, imagine having humans, you know, basically labeling the data that this is a good thing and other that this is a bad thing. And then we use ChatGPT to learn and we ask questions. So you, you see like the big issue of putting back the human in the loop without strict policy is like, we don't know how this AI truly has been trained. But is there then, and, and perhaps this is just an assumption on my part, my assumption is that a lot of people at this state using ChatGPT are probably going to come from predominantly more educated backgrounds or people that maybe have access to this technology, which by and large tend to lean to the left. Um, so are, are we making a, a progressive <laughs> robot? Is that what's happening? I mean, that, that, that is a is great that question. That is a great question. There is a tendency from, if you look at the geography of AI and the geography of AI production, um, for instance, the top 20 cities in the US in terms of size majority voted for uh, Hillary Clinton against uh, Donald Trump. So there is, you know, a, a geographical bias here. So cities tend to be more like left-leaning and, and more, we could say, progressive indeed. And this is where the engineers of OpenAI are based. Mm -hmm. So they, they, they reflect also the geography that, and the culture that's around them. Uh, a big question is that, again, is that a good thing? Or is that something that can backlash? Is that something that some people might be worried about? Is that something like you see now some social media platforms that are considered too left-wing and then you have like alternative and then you create separate world where people divide? Are we going to go into a world where you're going to have another like a super right-wing AI, super left-wing AI? Th th this is a good question. But shouldn't we perceive AI as if it is another human, maybe a very smart human, but a human that has opinions and uh, isn't always right? Is, is it just maybe more of a problem how we see AI instead of that it can say wrong things? I mean, this is a very good question. And uh, uh, yes, uh, ChatGPT can get it wrong because it's a probabilistic model. And we just have to make sure, it's not an issue in itself. It's just we have to make sure that we don't blindly follow the recommendation of ChatGPT or just copy paste and be like, okay, great. The best analogy for me is like Google map sometimes tells you to go through a lake. Remember we talked about last time to, to drive through a lake. Why? Because it sees that some people take boats, but I'm with my car and it just draws like a, a, a blue line over a lake. We need human wisdom. And you, every year you have people be like, actually, why some Google map? I just go through it and I end up in lakes. This is the same with ChatGPT. We always need to make sure that the human reads the output, tweak it, and basically validates. So what it is, it's a very smart ad assistant that you cannot fully trust. Uh, if I remember correctly, at some point in the first episode we did on AI, we talked a lot about the responsibility of governments to regulate AI in terms of the labor market. But this conversation kind of created a new question in my mind, right, where different states have different incentives to provide different information to their citizens. So where ChatGPT could maybe represent the opinions and the thoughts and the beliefs of the Western world, 
Is it possible that if we were to get a uh, AI from China or from Saudi Arabia, it would actually have really different opinions? I think the answer is in your question, right? Like, remember, it depends on the data you train it upon. If uh, the, 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 the data itself and the way people express, express opinion is different, the, the, the corpus training data set is different, then completely 100% by definition, you're going to have different AI. Okay. Yeah, see, this is, this is really interesting to me because I think we've just assumed that AI is this general brain, but I think this conversation has really, at least to me, illuminated that it's reflecting the interests of someone. And I guess we all are sort of hoping that these interests are altruistic, but interests are interests, right? So going back to this question about governmental responsibility, not necessarily just their incentives here, but we talked a lot in our first episode about the potential effect it could have on the labor market and how that was really the scary thing that we were seeing. And and in the last year, you know, I've seen so many videos of people showing AI making graphic design pieces way faster than any graphic designer could, or architectural models way faster than any architect could, and maybe they're not perfect and they need to be corrected, but, I mean, we're talking about seconds of work versus days. So... How are we seeing this disruptive effect? Have we started seeing the effect? Or is this sort of part of the thing I'm supposed to be scared of? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I will say, um, oof, I mean, this is such an open question. I'm going to have to break it down a little bit. But as a general feeling, I I will say we, we should be very careful. But we should also learn to embrace it in a safe, ethical responsible way because it also is a beautiful tool you know what i did this morning i had a mistake in my code my code was not working click 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 blank page i had 2000 line of code behind you know javascript i could not find it what i would have done a couple of years ago or like sorry months ago i would have asked somebody that works for me it, it sounds like years ago yeah, right? <laughs> sounds like it's another <laughs> another years ago <laughs> <laughs> yes. that, but that's interesting because that's really the way it feels. I will have either like spend the time myself, ask someone from my team, and we will have spent hours to find, you know, the little mistake in, in this thousand of lines of code. Mm-hmm. I copy pasted on ChatGPT, find the mistake automatically, mm-hmm. line, highlighted the line, there were a problem with a comma, a special sign, I removed it, it worked. This, this is amazing because that's not the fun part of my job. And I can tell you people working with me, it's not also the fun part of their job. So there are a lot of beautiful things. I also use it a lot for writing, you know, uh, as, as, as a writing poll, I see that, you know, kind of uh, ping-ponging a lot. Never will have, I, I will prompt and copy-paste because it's definitely not to the level that I need. And there is something which is domain-specific knowledge, which in, in my very narrow field, it will sound very dumb mm-hmm. in my narrow field. Uh, it might sound smart for like first year, second year, third year level student because the body of knowledge is much bigger. But to say something specific at, at the edge, it, it doesn't work that well. But it allows me to see more potential pieces of the puzzle that I might not have considered. So I basically use it to iterate. And then I, I, I choose. I'm always deciding. The decision power is every, every time. Every, every iteration, there is decision power on the next prompt. So... 
in my specific line of work, it's beautiful because it, it augments my intelligence by having like a lot of assistance, basically. And do we see the effect? I mean, yes. Talk to lawyers, it's the same. You see, the work of paralegal is also pre-drafting and... Uh, this, this is something that can be completely accelerated with ChatGPT. So what you're going to see is in the short run, because what, what, what is an occupation? An occupation is a collection of tasks. Yeah? And you're going to see large language models slowly but surely eating away some of these tasks, which in itself is not a problem. There are two problems here. Because again, if I never have to look into my line of codes again, I'm, I'm happy. The problem is... a First of all, if you don't uh, manage to evolve to a, an, another position, so that's a really, really big issue. What do you do? And the second issue is, indeed, if it doesn't lead to fulfilling or you know, receiving money. So this is something we have to solve, but I don't think that it's going to be smart to slow down the progress of AI. We just need to accelerate the way we redistribute wealth. The task you talk about are, I guess, more high-skilled tasks or more complex tasks. Uh, so is this technological revolution actually quite different from previous technological revolutions that replaced maybe more low-skilled tasks? Or? Yeah, you're absolutely right. First of all, uh, the AI space, there is two, two spaces of AI. There is the physical embodied AI, that's robotics, you know, uh, anything that touches to sensor, IoT to a certain extent, and you have what we call the cognitive AI. Cognitive AI has different type of algorithms, evolutionary algorithms, machine learning, uh, expert systems, which are the very old AI. So somehow you, you, you had both uh, always playing a role, but historically we, we started by automating stuff physically, right? so that, that was the, the, the logic. And slowly we started to have like cognitive tasks automated. There is a picture of Albert Einstein with one of his favorite people, and it was his computer. Mm. This guy was called a computer. It was, mm. yeah, it was his calculator. This job, he had amazing mathematical abilities. He was able to perform computation very, very fast. Of course, this occupation does not exist anymore, completely gone. And that's a cognitive one. And you can ask yourself, is, is that something, you know, high level or low level? I mean, uh, it, 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 it was already pretty high level. But basically what we did with large language models, we started automating more and more of these cognitive tasks that we thought, again, will take another decade to fully automate. I mean, really try these large language models for, for things like writing poetry. I mean, this is insane. In milliseconds, it, it, it generates poems. I mean, for sure better than me. But... The scale of it, like how many can generate with playing with random, random, randomness. I mean, this is incredible. And what really large language models are doing, and that's why they're so good. They have something we don't have is that they have a bird eye view. They, they, they read it all. We're super biased. So an analogy I, I like to make is like a food recipe, right? I have Mediterranean roots, mainly from Italy, Spain, and south of France. So, you know, I know that garlic and oil and tomatoes combine very well. But I have no knowledge of, you know, food for Thailand, from Thailand. And I don't know even how they could recombine together. If you can have a bird-eye view of the entire food space in the world, you can start recombining stuff that people locally cannot even think about because they've never been exposed to food that's far away. And that's really the power of OpenAI, ChatGPT, and other language models. Potentially, they can see everything 
and they can just try out all kinds of potential recombination in a vacuum. And, and that is why the, the creativity potential of this large language model is something we need to pay attention to. Okay, I mean, I, that's, also, that's also just a bit terrifying because I thought that the creative industries were the ones that were going to be to be safe, but also there was all these strikes happening recently uh, in LA with the writers of a lot of TV shows and movies because they weren't being paid fair wages, which I'm with them. Um, but there's also a lot of talk about how now they think that it's just going to push us more towards AI replacing them or drafting a lot more of their scripts. So is is there anything to be done about saving some of these occupations? Is it going to remove them altogether or is it just going to require fewer people to, to do them? I mean, it's not perfect, like you said, and, and I've used it before to transcribe things for interviews. I still have to go through and fix it, but it definitely takes a, one person's work away. In my line of work, it, it probably takes five to ten. In, in just in my in my own team, I can see how I need ten less people to do the same work. So you can the the different things you can you can think of. One is you become more productive, so you create more, and you keep these people, but you reskill them. Right. So you train them to use this tool and, and you start delegating all the stuff that are usually something you do yourself, mm -hmm. which there is always whenever something gets automated. It's not like, you know, with all the technologies that have been out there since the, the, the first industrial revolution. It's not that we are sitting on our chairs every day and not doing anything. We're actually working quite substantially, all of us. So historically... Um, these technologies, they've been more labor augment augmenting than labor replacing. So they replace low skill, but then, you know, it, it just becomes more complex to produce an airplane than to grow potatoes. So we need more brains, more people, more technology. So we keep going up and up and up and up. So we, we, these technologies, historically, they've been labor augmenting. Today, it's a big question mark. I'm not going to say we know. There is a debate in the literature. Mm -hmm. If you look at what we call the AI and the future of work literature, which I'm very fascinated about, I'm trying to set up some initiative on that. Utrecht is a great uh, place actually to work on this topic. What you can see is that <laughs> there are people that say, okay, this time is different. And other people that say, well, you know, th there are good reasons to think that we're going to start using more of the complex decision skills of humans and part of the creativity, but then we, we have a better tool. So we, we still use the creativity, but it just augments it. So it, it pushes up, right? It's, it's like the, a tide that, that lifts all boats. And one thing that I, I found very exciting is that, I mean, let's be honest, who is, what is the share of the population today that has the, the luck to work on, on creative problems? Very few. What happens with these large language models, and we have about now five, six really good economic studies that show that, is that the people that benefit the most from large language models are the people at the bottom of the distribution. Distribution in terms of skills. Mm -hmm. Meaning, imagine that you have something that can spell your grammar. If you're already perfect in grammar, if you, you know, won all the spelling bees competition, well, it's not going to help you too much. But if you're not that good, it's going to make a huge impact in your writing. So we see that the, the, the workers that basically have the, the, the lower capabilities, they get a lot of help. Mm -hmm. So it also means it can be a way to equalize and give access to this creative occupation to more people. 
So all of a sudden, maybe you don't need to go through all the years of studies to start creating and, and designing um, you know, beautiful apartments and, and things like this. So there might be also a way to, and that's the way I, I, I hope it will develop and that's the way I see it, is that we're going to have more humans that are going to engage in creative tasks. Oh, that's so optimistic. You never hear that. <laughs> you never hear that opinion. Okay, that made me a little less scared, actually. But uh, I guess going back, though, you, you said that it helps a lot of people that maybe are kind of lower level on a certain skill. And I remember there was this really angry email that the university sent out earlier this year about how you're not allowed to use chat GPT for assignments because it counts as plagiarism and this and that. So uh, <laughs> where do we sort of draw this line? And, and is there even a way to tell that someone has used it? Well, oh my God, am, am I going to get fired if I say <laughs> what, I, what I really uh, want to say? You can do one of those Twitter disclaimers, views of my own. Not <laughs> okay, <reject>. please, exactly. <laughs> don't cut this, don't, don't edit this part, please. No, I mean, I, I, I look, I, I understand the, the, the university decision somehow uh, in the sense that you, you want students to, to, to be able to, to, to write by themselves and all of that. My position on that, if, let's say, you will follow my class and uh, I will not respect this policy. There's air quotes. You can't <laughs> see them, but there are air quotes. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what I will do will be different in a completely hypothetical world, of course. What I will be different is like, look, this is a tool. The tool is out there. Mm -hmm. Let's learn how to use this tool. But then uh, I'm going to be, my standards are going to rise. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I, I want an essay that's way better, but use whatever you can, all sorts of information. You know, it reminds me, I'm old enough to remember when Wikipedia became a thing. And universities also had this, like, oh, we ban Wikipedia. Today, everybody uses Wikipedia. Why would you not use Wikipedia? Why would you not use a tool or, or a resource? It doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. So I like to think about, okay, now to write, you have a tool. That's called ChatGPT. But I also want, so I think we, we have to change the way we assess students. We have to raise standards. We have to teach students how to use large language models to, to become excellent thinkers, mm -hmm. to understand the world better, and to communicate better about what they understand about the world. And that also means much more like oral assignment. So I've been grading way too much in my life. I hate grading, it's the worst thing in the world. Um, but one thing I can tell you about grading is like it's hard to really tell, you know, like the quality of students when you, when you read uh, something about students. It, you can, but it's hard. When I speak to a student, I, I can tell immediately. Actually, within a few seconds, I can tell, but after a conversation of 10, 15 minutes, or oh, I can tell if you understand the topic or not. And I, I, the, the ranking becomes completely obvious. So I, I, the way I will do this assignment will be different. I will first make sure you learn how to use technology, assess your essay, given the fact that you've been receiving a lot of support and assistance, mm -hmm. And then, you know, have a lot more of these kind of uh, oral interviews. Hey, so you're, you're kind of thinking about it not in a way of trying to, you know, metaphorically kind of slap the ruler down on the hand, but instead shift the entire educational system to adapt to the technology. Yeah, but I like this view because I, th I think it's similar when uh, with the introduction of Internet. So I think decades ago when you had to write uh, some kind of uh, scientific essay, you, you had to go to the library, search a lot of articles and books, 
and now you can all do that online so it's much more e easy to to find uh, stuff to uh, to find literature that you can use in your essays and i think that made it a lot easier but uh, with that it also raised the the standards of of how good an article uh, or an essay should be and i think this is just similar to that you now have a lot of tools that helps you with writing and it also raises the the standards of of the work you should produce yeah absolutely and i think it has also potential to democratize uh, you know education and uh, I, as i said at the beginning of course I, i'm working a lot with policy makers so i'm, I'm part of, I'm, I'm sitting on the board of acer and acer advise european commission on research innovation policy and the only thing we've been talking about for six months is, is ai okay and how to regulate ai how to make sure europe leads about you know in ai because if you would ask me what the position of europe is in ai it would be even worse than last time so okay you know but one thing that we also talk a lot about is a um, education system and, and, and make sure uh, we adapt. And one thing I can tell you is that we, we don't. Mm. Our education system seems right now to be ignoring, like, to be honest, this policy, don't use ChatGPT. It's just ignoring technology. It's like, we don't change. We just, let, let, <laughs> let us do what we've always done. Yeah. We don't want to change. That, to me, that's the reflection of this policy. And cut that, of course. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that's, 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 that's the, really the way I see it. It's the, uh, an easy way out not to have to deal with the problem. But let's embrace it and train a generation that, that really use the tools, you know, and, and, and programming and, and other things. So building AI literacy is not an option. It's not just something you can do, you know, if you're in computer science. It's, it's the cat is out of the bag. It's over. AI is touching all of us. We need people that are educated, that can understand AI in ge geopolitics, AI in ethics, that can understand AI in the future of work. So it's just, that's it. It impacts everything. So we need to make sure we have, we train a generation of citizens that are trained to understand the impact of AI and that have this AI literacy. And we're not doing that right now. Well, so, so really just kind of embracing it all together, putting it down into primary education even. Because I, even as soon as you said that, I remember there were so many classes I took in high school that were like, don't use calculators. And I was like, why? <laughs> why? I'm never going to do this by hand. Yeah. <laughs> this is really silly to me. Why? I can just put this in Excel and it's going to do it better and faster than I would. Or like it makes me think about when we started to have like books, you know, it's like, no, no, memorize don't, don't, don't use a book, memorize. Like, it's stupid. Let, let's make, you know, make sure I use my brain power to make complex decisions and, and not to, to remember stuff that can, I can just find in a second, right? Yeah, I guess it brings us all back to that math teacher that was like, you're not going to have a calculator with you wherever you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, look at us now. <laughs> okay, so earlier in this episode, we talked about how maybe different regions and governmental interests can impact um, how an AI might come together or present itself, right? But also in our last episode, you talked about how AI and a lot of these highly complex technologies are a winner-takes-all kind of game, right? Where certain regions like Silicon Valley or Boston are going to do really, really well and really, really benefit from this stuff. And other regions that maybe do not have these capabilities or these pre-existing skills and firms might be left behind. Right. So is it safe to say that the same regions that benefited from the original tech boom of social media and Internet are probably going to be the ones that will benefit from this? Or are we seeing AI as a great leveler? 
Yeah, I mean, that, that's probably one of the most interesting questions out there because the geographical angle really helps us to understand uh, the, the new power relationship at the, at the worldwide scale. So essentially, just, just think about the, the way AI is produced. Who produces AI? It's super, super, super concentrated, more than any other industry in terms of production. But in terms of consumption, it's very flat, meaning you can access almost any customer you know, from, from anywhere in the world, meaning... At the same time, you have very few people, very few companies that produce this technology, mm -hmm. but we're all using them. Mm -hmm. Like, ask your audience, how many are using ChatGPT? I ask my students, <clears throat> everybody raised their hand, everybody. So what you have is a product that can be shipped everywhere, and, but is only produced by a few people and a few companies in a few places. And that's really, really bad. And last time, first episode, I raised concern. I said, that's, gonna, that, that's really bad. But it was only about recommended systems and other AI products. Now it's worse because you're using data produce. Let's say, let's take Europe, who is like lagging behind in, in, uh, in AI tremendously. Let's take Europe. We are producing content, data, blogs, you know, social media posts, knowledge, publication that are being used to train an AI model developed in the Silicon Valley, package. And then we buy it back. So we send the training data for free. It's like giving oil for free. But we buy back the package algorithm as an AI. And hold on, we, we're not stopping there. It's also replacing jobs in Europe. Oh, man. And the augmenting you know, jobs might be where the AI is actually produced. Mm -hmm. So compared to last time, this specific point of a winner-takes-all AI world it just got worse. Okay, so we're ending on a positive note is <laughs> what I'm hearing. You can put it at, the, really, at the beginning of the interview. <laughs> yeah, we really went full circle here. I'm scared again. <laughs> I am once again scared. So if we're going from scary to scarier, and I want to get a little bit like 1980s, 1990s, the robots will re take revenge and kill us all. Um, so is, are the interests of AI aligned with the best interests of humans? Or is it just going to get to the point where it's like, it's humans, they're idiots. I can do everything better myself. This is a great question. And that's a question uh, that, that has been really on top of the debates in the AI uh, community for, for a long time, but especially for the, for the past six months. And you really have a, a, everybody. I mean, the, the community is divided. So it's called the AI alignment problem, meaning we need to make sure that what AI does is aligned with our interest. For instance, it does not kill us, doesn't you know, take our jobs, or it doesn't, you know, listen. Yeah, essentially, it's pretty much does not, you know, take, get rid of us. And we have to be very careful because we need to understand what is the objective function of AI? What is AI optimizing? So if you say, for instance, AI want to optimize, you know, the health of the planet, and AI identify us as something that's not good for the planet, then it might makes complete sense to get rid of us. In that case, <laughs> AI, oh, is not, yeah, AI is not aligned with human interest. It's aligned with other type of interest. And um, this concern has been so large over the past couple of months that we had you know, a list of completely A-plus researchers in AI that basically ask to pause 
the development of AI, being like, hold on, it's going too fast. And we're not sure whether, if, whether we're going to reach a stage where the intelligence of AI is going to grow exponentially and then all of a sudden we're going to lose control on its development. So this is a really, really big issue and uh, I, I just hope more people w will know about it because it, it really affects us all. But the people that make this decision in this AI world, they're, they're very few. So maybe we can do a fun little experiment. So we've already asked you before in our first episode our final question, what is geography? But I think it would be fun to ask you again, given everything that's happened, and then possibly ask ChatGPT <laughs> and see, <laughs> and see <laughs> how our answers are deferring. So uh, I'll let you go first, of course. So in your eyes, and maybe you'll end up saying the same thing, maybe you'll end up saying something different since, well, the landscape has changed. What is geography? Yeah, I mean, I, I remember from last time, if I, uh, indeed, uh, maybe I can, I can give a slightly different answer, but I'm sure I'm going to lose against ChatGPT. It's going to sound way smarter and, and weirder. That, that's already a, lo a lost battle. Um, but to me, geography is really about understanding that our world, uh, places in our world are at the same time very similar. And if you look at the humans of our world, we share very, very similar traits. And at the same time, we're very different. And that's to me, geography is understanding what might sound as a paradox and making sure we create a world that works for all of us. So my wish for the world is to unite. So I, let me just have a little segue. But um, I think another thing that got a bit worse since the last episode is that our world is even more divided. You see trade wars, you see actual wars. And uh, this is also not something I was expecting. You see relationship between the US and China deteriorating. And our world is getting divided. And I think our job also as people that care about geography uh, is to you know, understand what unites us and make sure we are marching in the same direction. So it's equally about the similarities as it is about the differences. Yeah, it's like understanding what truly fundamentally unites us, the fundamentals. And the difference are somehow, I would say, um, are, are interesting, but the, it's like, you know, the, the type of food we eat is different. But essentially, the way, you know, we, we love our children is the same. Mm. And it's really about understanding what is completely fundamental between humans, what makes us human. So understanding geography is understanding what makes us human and understanding that our differences very often are not fundamental. Okay. All right, ChatGPT. <laughs> okay. It, it gives a very long answer. Um, but one sentence that maybe is a little bit similar to what other guests have said in earlier episodes is uh, geography helps us to make sense of the world and its interactions. I liked your answer better, PA. <laughs> I thought it was a little more poetic. <laughs> <laughs>